Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. Risography, an early form of photocopying technology, is experiencing a resurgence in the field of printmaking. And the Department of Design at Eastern Washington University is bringing a brand new risograph machine into central Spokane. We'll hear more about that later in this episode. Before we get into print-based creativity, let's take a look at digital creativity. The popular game Minecraft has come to the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture in the form of a new exhibition. Created by the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle in partnership with Minecraft developer Mojang Studios, the exhibition is a celebration of the game and the creative platform it provides for players of any age. Rob Wurstel, the newly appointed Director of Education at the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture, and Kayla Tackett, the Max Exhibitions and Collections Director, came into the studio to talk about Minecraft, the exhibition, and what it holds for diehard fans as well as newcomers. Minecraft the Exhibition is really an in-depth exploration of the game, um, how people use the game, how people create with the game, what you can do. It's really exploring the whole world of possibilities within Minecraft. I know people use the word immersive a lot, but it's very immersive. So it's almost like walking into Minecraft yourself. So there are trees and, you know, there's a cow and a librarian. And so it's like walking into the game yourself. And so this gives us sort of a three-dimensional take on that because in many ways, by playing Minecraft, you enter the Minecraft world. But this is meant to be evocative of that so you can really step into it. It is. It's. Uh, I've been walking through the galleries as we're installing, and I just find it so delightful. It almost feels like I've been shrunk down, and I see the trees, and I can walk up to a, a dog, and it's. It's really brings you down to that scale. What sort of things are on offer? You had mentioned trees. You'd mentioned dogs. Um, what are some of the other mobs, as they're called, that we'll see in this <laughs> exhibition? Yeah, so there are 15 total mobs. Uh, that's short for mobile entities, for those who don't know that term. And there are 15 of them. They include everything from the Enderman. They have, of course, the classic Alex and Steve player characters. We have a creeper who does explode. We have a llama. We have the cow, we have a baby panda, a skeleton. I'm sure I'm forgetting some of them, but there are 15 total. You can take selfies with them. They make sounds. They're wonderful. And you have mentioned the creeper. And for listeners who aren't familiar, this is a somewhat camouflaged silent mob who will come up to you while you're working, while you're probably hard at work building something and then explode on you. How exactly does the explosion take place in the confines of the museum exhibit. <laughs> it is a uh, theatrical audiovisual representation of an explosion. <laughs> I see, I see. And Rob, we've talked about Minecraft uh, as a game, but you in your educational role are probably looking at the educational aspects of the game. How is this Minecraft exhibition educational and what is that component? Well, I think that Minecraft is at the forefront of game-based learning. For many, many educators, this is a way that both individuals, classrooms, families work to share time together, be creative. Um, I feel like what this exhibition does is allow that experience to surround you and become part of it. And as a, as a social experience, you can come in with your class or with your family and share it and tell stories about it and go back and then play the game. There is the educational module which has specific games that are that is part of the exhibition but again i think it is really something for game-based 
learning um, when we think about AI and other things in the future and, and preparing students and young people for the future, that being creative is something that is very important. Yeah, it's remarkable how many conversations about art these days. AI is a topic that keeps coming up. And also code-based creativity, which Minecraft seems to foster. Now, are you going to have any dedicated activities as part of this exhibition that are educational in nature? Well, there, there is one space that has the, the educational module and has those things with the coding and has about language and geography and building and creative elements. We are doing other programming around it. We have a discussion on December 9th by Tammy Schrader, who is a uh, leader and advocate about game-based learning, talking to, I would think, interested parents and teachers about how you can integrate this in as part of your curriculum. Um, so those are the things that are supporting um, that learning part of, of this exhibition. And it's also an entry point for those who might not consider themselves museum goers, because here is something that's filtered its way out into popular culture. I think it's the most popular game of all time, the players number in the millions. And so it becomes an entry point to the Mac for folks who are interested in Minecraft, and then they see the other exhibitions that are on offer as well. Absolutely. And Kayla, can you talk in a little bit more detail about the genesis of this exhibition? I understand that it was co-developed with Mo Yang, who is the developer. So yeah, there is some authenticity. It has creds there. Um, has it evolved over time or has it remained roughly consistent as it's toured? I think it's been roughly consistent. Um, it, it's been adapted at every place it's been, according to the space and according to each museum's needs. So it opened at Mopop in Seattle, and then it went to Liberty Science Center in New Jersey, then to the Indianapolis Children's Museum, and now to us. And so each place has made some adaptations or additional programming according to what they need. But um, the elements have been roughly the same. And what is the footprint of this? It is over 6,000 square feet. It takes up three of our main galleries and continues on into our uh, education create space, as Rob said. And this will be running contemporaneously with other exhibitions. During that time, what other exhibitions will be taking place that they can see? Uh, they will also be able to see Frank S. Matsura, Portraits from the Borderland, which is Frank Sake Matsura's photography of many Okanagan tribal members, as well as plateau cultural materials from our collection. They will also be able to see First Impressions, uh, Women Printmakers of Washington, which comes to us from the Cascadia Art Museum. Um, featuring these just the stunning variety of prints from women printmakers, of course. And I'd add that we have the Campbell House that's open and many programs for the holidays at the Campbell House that will be ongoing throughout the run of this show. And I think that's a good entry point to talk about some of the other educational initiatives that might be running contemporaneously with this. So what other education-related events do you have planned while this exhibition is running? We, uh, again, are focused in on that teacher experience. Um, we're hoping to work with the Max partners to develop more things that we can do. Um, but we are going to be doing some things at Campbell House, um, starting with a holiday kickoff. I think that's right after Thanksgiving and through the first few weeks of December, where we're welcoming in families uh, to celebrate the holidays, but also thinking about connecting ways that the Campbell House fits with Minecraft in ways like there's a Parcheesi game that sits on, in the Campbell House, so this idea of family and gaming 
you know, this is 1900s versus the 2023s. And I'll put this question to both of you, and and you can both answer in tandem or uh, just one of you. But why is this particular Minecraft exhibition such a get? Well, it's a huge get because it's well, limited. This is the last opportunity for anyone to see it. It was the last stop on the tour, so it, that was a huge get for us. Uh, but it's also a really great opportunity where this production value that's been put into the exhibition, it's really the most transformational change in the galleries. And not only does it feel like you're walking into Minecraft, but you can also play Minecraft. We have over two dozen gaming stations so people can try it. Or if they've only played on, for instance, mouse and keyboard, they can try playing it with an Xbox controller. So you can also experience the game itself. And I'm looking forward to seeing kids walking their families through and kind of explaining and being excited and, you know, oh, wow, there's the lava flow and there's the zombie pig man, for instance. Great. Well, Kayla and Rob, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank Thank you. That was Rob Worstel and Kayla Tackett of the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture talking about Minecraft, the exhibition, which just opened at the MAC. It runs there until the end of 2023, but the MAC is the last stop on the exhibition's national tour, so this will be the last chance to step into the game, so to speak, and interact with the large-sized 3D characters. For tickets or more information about the exhibition, visit northwestmuseum.org. While Minecraft creates a world in a digital space, the printed page is still more than capable of conjuring a world, or indeed worlds, in our imaginations. Spokane author Aaron Pringle has just published a new story collection titled Unexpected Weather Events, where different characters experience connection, loss, wonder, and grief amid the backdrop of bleak landscapes and dying towns. Our own Karen Emery spoke with Aaron about unexpected weather events, and their conversation started with Aaron explaining and reading from Valentine's Day, one of the stories in her new collection. It revolves around the death of a father and who had children and the mother is left and the children are left and um, they're trying to make their way. Their mother announced she'd gotten the job over dinner in their old town, old house, old kitchen, old table where their father's chair still sat. Nice, Allie said and gave her a high five. She smiled harder, trying to stay light about it all. You think it'd be easier after six years. Had it already been six years? It had. And she said, we'll have health insurance after 90 days. That isn't so far off, as long as none of you break before then. She smiled. The only thing is that it's pretty far. Tam looked up. How far? She twisted the napkin in her lap. Far. He waited like his father used to, hands resting on either side of his plate. She hadn't noticed him watching his father so closely to take on the mannerism. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was born with the mannerism, same as a kitten stretching with its back up and paws out. Well, she said, we'd have to live closer. Move, said Johnny. Allie looked from his brother's faces to his mother's. It'll be good, she said, an adventure. Who will live here, Tam said. New chances, she said, new friends, Tam said. 
It's not exactly a seller's market out in the cornfields. What do you know about real estate? Enough. She shrugged. Someone, I guess. It'll be an adventure for lots of people. Allie, the youngest, imagined his whole body breaking like one of the canning jars his brother set up in the backyard and shot at with their father's gun once it returned from the police station in the thick plastic bag with his gray sweater, underwear, and corduroy pants. There were no socks. He hadn't been wearing socks. I think the thing about grief and, and experiencing it, and, and I keep experiencing it, um, my father died when I was 17 of cancer, and then who was next? Then my best friend died of not cancer, but it was a similarly fatal disease. And then my sister died by suicide when I was 29 or 30. The hardest, one of the hardest parts of, of grief, and I try to, to write about that, um, whether I'm untangling it or just when you start writing about grief, you can't help but write about the everydayness of life mm -hmm. that continues, which is also the grief while the dying is happening. And then after the death has happened and that part of grief comes is the shock that you, you know, like I, I would find myself in the grocery store and I would be so mad that Oreos were on sale. Like, really? Like, right now, my sister is has died, and and people are buying Oreos? Like, what is wrong with all of you? You know, why are we even selling Oreos? You know, it's just the ridiculousness that, that, um, that contrast between the everydayness and the banal and the deep loss that you yourself are suffering and um and and how complicated it is to try to live at the same time that all of that is happening before every grief that i have gone through um it would have been so useful to have read books where this happened to mm -hmm. the characters mm -hmm. and not I'm not a nonfiction person, so I don't books that tell me like right. what's going through biologically or in my brain are not a solace mm -hmm. to me. Right. Mm -hmm. But every book that I've read that has it has helped me the story in some way understand the human experience. But there's been such a chasm of understanding the human experience of grief that I feel like when I sit down to write. I'm almost writing the stories that I needed to hear uh, years ago that would have prepared me yeah. and that are fiction. Switching gears, tell me about the role of Spokane in your stories. It took a while to write about Spokane because I, I really strive to tell the truth in my stories, which sounds silly when you know they're all fiction. But, um, <laughs> but if... But I have found, especially after my sister's suicide or whatever that was, you know, her death, mm. that experiencing her death was so different from experiencing my best friend's death. Mm. And this idea that I may have acquired uh, that every grief is basically it's just going to be the same 
room that you walk through, right? And you're going to, this will happen and this will happen and yeah. this will happen, you know, but it wasn't at all. And so then I became very hesitant about in a story what what I would talk about or observe. And so because I didn't want to lie about it by accident, like, for example, and, and I don't want to suicide us all over the place, but um, <laughs> that is usually used just as um, a plot device in most people's work when they bring in suicide. It's like a clever way to get into a mystery or unravel a mystery right, story right. or it's something or to really shock you yeah. in a horror movie. Yeah. Um, it's something to explore like romantically in terms of the mind, like what uh, this person, like uh, unraveling their lives to the point of like, oh, it's also interesting that this is how it would end. But it's, but, but once you've experienced it, you see all the superficiality and the way that it's been used by other artists. And I thought, oh God, I don't want to do that by accident else that I have not fully experienced to the point that I am creating something hard the other person has to wade through. Spokane Public Radio's Karen Emery talking there with author Erin Pringle about her new story collection, Unexpected Weather Events. Erin will be hosting a book release party for Unexpected Weather Events at the Shadel Park Library in Spokane this Sunday, October 1st. And that'll be followed by some live blues music by Neil Elwell. If you'd like to know more about Erin or Unexpected Weather Events, head to erinpringle.com. And for details on this Sunday's book launch, visit spokanelibrary.org and look for the events tab. And now we come to risography, which is a modern printmaking tool, but also a throwback to the early days of photocopiers. Janelle Husterlid and Jamin Kewen, two members of the Eastern Washington University Department of Design, were recently awarded Spokane Arts Grant Award funding for their risograph print residency of Spokane. The project is capitalizing on the resurgence of risography in the printmaking world, as well as the creative possibilities that risography opens up. But the term risography was an unfamiliar one to me, so I started by asking Janelle and Jamin to describe exactly what it is. So usually how I describe what the machine is and how it functions to people is just through the metaphor of like screen printing. Um, it's a good way to think about it is each color that you want to print with is its own stencil on a separate print process, and then they all get combined one by one. So taking that process and then combining it with a fast office copy scenario. It's got two drums, so you can only do two colors at a time. So it's a four-color process. We've got cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, so CMYK, which is traditional and offset printing. So it's another term that people might understand in the design world. So you have to do like yellow and magenta at the same time, and then you let those dry, and then you run them back through again and you do blue and black. And so it creates this layering. So if you want to create green, you have to adjust the opacity of blue and then yellow. And that would make an overlap of green. 
And because you're running it through different times, it will create an offset. So there'll be, it's not guaranteed to be perfect, which is part of the cool factor of this technology is it, it's about the weird and quirky things that can happen. I see. So it kind of prides itself on its imperfections. Absolutely. And how long has this technology been around? Really early 90s. Early Maybe 80s. Even late 80s. Was it I early think 80s? Mid 80s. Yeah. So there were these resurgence maybe 10 years ago of people trying to get rid of these machines. They were in schools. Most of our, like the generations of those of us that went to elementary school back in the 80s, <laughs> all had those quizzes and things were all done, usually on a risograph. And there's a few one color machines at some high schools in Spokane, but no one has the machine that we have because they still are used for that idea of replication, like speedy economical replication. And I just want to clarify one uh -huh. point because wasn't the 80s technology more mimeograph than It recograph? started as kind of mimeograph. I think it's I a see. child of that process. I see. Yeah. I see. This could be wrong, but I think it was like the first transition into like what is now the office laser jet. And people were getting rid of them like 10 years ago, like just take it, Craigslist, like please free machine. And then designers and artists were like, wait, we're going to do this. So there's a few, there's Outlet PDX, there's Resolve, there's a few like big studios. But this is going to be the first kind of like Rezo studio within 250 mm -hmm. miles. And why was it so important to you to get a risograph? Is it because it's fashionable or is it because there are artistic processes that just simply are not possible using other mechanisms? I would say it's kind of killing two birds in the sense that it is so unique that the physical outcome that you get is something that you just can't get in any other process. And then the other side is it's a really, really excellent tool to teach color interaction with students, especially in like a design curriculum. And earlier you had mentioned exploiting its imperfections. And in what intentional ways do you exploit those imperfections? Um, like Janelle mentioned, the misregistration with colors can create really cool effects and... Changing colors. So you you have to do color separations, which is also part of that educational experience for students is separating out those four colors, which they don't get to do in a practical application ever, really. Like we're like, here, do a print, do this. Let's look at channels in Photoshop. Um, this, they have to separate the channels out. And what you can also do is you can, instead of having the yellow channel be yellow, you can assign it to be blue. And it will create these really weird combinations. And um, we also are launching an animation certificate at Eastern. And one of the reasons I really want on this machine is because it does some really cool animation techniques where you can pull apart um, an animation and you can put it frame by frame in a way and then you run that through the machine and then you scan it back in again and you get these really beautiful brilliant textures that you can't get with any other kind of application even screen printing and the idea of perfection is something that our students struggle with and I think humans struggle with this is the idea of I need to be perfect and I'm learning this thing to be more perfect and with this you kind of cut loose a little bit and you let go of that and then you get to really be excited and charged about what those experimental results look like, which I think is a kind of a beautiful metaphor for life. And as I try to imagine some of the output of this, you had mentioned animation. What other creations is this machine capable of? 
One really cool thing is the media is pretty experimental also. So what you can feed through the machine, a lot of Rezo Studios create and produce their own specialty papers, specialty newsprints, dyed papers, fibrous papers, thick media, thin thin media. So there's a big range of effects, especially with all the like fluorescent color options that you have, things that you can't get with a normal inkjet printer or laser jet printer. Um, you can get a lot of really, really cool effects through low opacity inks and blending. And then also, just as an example, like metallic inks on darker papers for different effects. One of the cool things about it is, like I said, it's kind of hackable. There's a lot of DIY kind of mixability in a sense. Like going back to like you can abuse and like misuse the printer in different ways. There's a lot of a lot of really, really cool ways that people have like used it as like an experimental tool. Um, and this residency program will offer up a really, really cool opportunity to collaborate with local regional artists and designers to have a space for them to work, to experiment, and to try to push the machine in different directions. And we came up with this concept because we're trying to find ways to bring new ideas to Spokane and the creative community here. And so how do we bring outside in? And also how do we educate what is here and help it maybe become better or have more tools for, for people to create with? And so um, I came from residencies and I used to help direct a residency here in Spokane and Jamin's had experience with it. And the beautiful nature of having time to work with technology or a certain tool for amount of time. So we're going to have um, residents work with the technology for a month and that they'll just be able to get through and kind of experiment and push it. And then also have a, a takeaway that is this tangible artifact of the experience. And the machine itself for these and these workshops are going to be housed in the Catalyst building downtown. So folks won't necessarily have to travel to Cheney to take advantage of this. They'll be able to take advantage of it in Spokane. Absolutely. And they have each resident, we're doing one quarterly, so there'll be one each season. Um, but we have this, it was a conference room, and we're converting it into the artist's studio, and it's glass-fronted. And so we'll be also be able to walk in, and the idea is to have it kind of be a project space so that the, the public can come in and wander through, and then they'll have access to seeing what is being created behind this, this glass studio. Because, yeah, we don't, we're trying to, it's open to the public right now, so people can come in and use it. We just haven't had a lot of takers. <laughs> well, you know, hopefully when this piece airs, you'll have hundreds of thousands more. Today. We hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this and you know, running us through the basics of risography as well as the Saga funding and what that'll be used for. Yeah, and we could not have done this without Saga. Thank you, Spokane Arts. <laughs> if I possess the printing press I'd use it most, I must confess to tell the world what's on my mind No better way I'd ever find I'd print some hand
That was Janelle Husterlid and Jamin Kewen giving some detail about the Rezograph process and their Rezograph print residency of Spokane, which just received SAGA funding. To find out more about the residency and even apply to participate in it, visit ewu.edu and search the website for the 4D Lab page. If I possessed a pretty this has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. If you want to listen again, or you want to make sure that you catch future episodes of the Thursday Arts Preview, you can subscribe to the podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli. In both is time, alive.